Batman, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, bud. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, it, it's it's good to be able to talk to you. I was listening to uh, a podcast you were doing the the other day with the uh, was it NCA coaches, um, and kind of you you discussing yeah. uh, a lot of uh, kind of training with youth when you were training when you were younger, and and it hit a really really good point home for for me. I was about 13 years of age when I was training. Um, at 13 years of age, I was probably the best part of like six foot three, six foot four. Uh, I was a big, big, big kid, much like yourself. Um, and especially over here in the yeah. UK, there's a strange stigma about kind of kids working out. And I was really interested to kind of hear your thoughts on things. Obviously, kids develop at different rates. You developed at a much faster rate. You were pushing weights that kind of adults only dream of doing in your very, very early years. So what age do you think we should be encouraging training in the gym with with younger athletes when do you think it's a problem and when do you think it's a necessity well i don't think the problem is the kid's age i think the problems are the kid's parents so not knowing what's appropriate at what time so you know when you're the ages of four to ten mobility dexterity coordination should be your major rules of thumb and then after that point, at about 11 or 12, that's when I started lifting weights, is a time to start some resistance-type training um, as far as, you know, things that are non-body weight. So in my opinion, I think the real baseline is to not create athleticism after 10 or 12. It's to create the athleticism for 10. Then once that is created and the balance and control and motor patterns are solid, with body weight type movements, then you can move on to resistance type training. And I would say around 10 years of 10 years of age, if the base is built correctly. And that's what the Soviets figured out long, long ago. And that's why if you look at a lot of their old translated texts, they talk a ton about having all their athletes in gymnastics and tumbling sports so that they can create, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if you were trying to learn a clean and jerk or a snatch and you could already do handstands and walk? Yeah, yeah. Right? Your shoulder dexterity is going to be so much better in strength and coordination and control. And at that age, your body is very, very sponge-like in the fact that it can absorb a lot of different types of training. But, you know, now that I've, I've seen the USAPL and a couple of these IPF leagues move the, the, the strength training stuff down in the way lower ages, I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, it's... Uh... Mostly because we don't have... No, no, please go on. Yeah, mostly because we don't have the coaching staff educated high enough to complete it. I don't think it's a bad idea in general, but the problem is we don't have the staffing uh, in place to be able to coordinate that type of understanding. And, you know, the thing of it is, is if you look at a guy named Istvan Bali, he was a humongous hockey coach, probably had more than, I want to say, 200 or 300 people in the NHL that trained with him. And his whole philosophy was you had three different phases of training. You had the train-to-train train phase, which meant you just liked to work out. You learned to love to work out. There was no competition. Then you had the train-to-compete phase, which taught you how to be a competitor. Then you had the train-to-win phase, which is where records and goals and things of that nature become huge. Each of those phases are five to seven years long. So if you're taking a kid at six years old and putting him in competitive powerlifting – competitive sports it's non-game you're actually hurting their overall athletic peak 
Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's finding that balance of what is going to complement the athlete long term. And I think for a lot of people, and especially at grassroots level, because it is grassroots level and they have so many kids coming through the system, I think it kind of gets lost out a lot in that because out of your, you know, 100 kids, you're, you're looking at maybe, I don't know, between one and five going through to eventually competing at a higher standard with the vast majority of them dropping out probably when they hit their teenage years, you know, when they start uh, going out, when they start talking to the opposite sex, when all those other little things start becoming more interesting. And it takes you away from that. And that, I mean, that's something that I found massively with, with my rugby career. Thankfully, I was part of an academy all throughout my teenage years. So it was a case of that that was my life. You know, I was I was playing with guys on sure. the weekend that, you know, just over the summer disappeared. I've been playing sports for like 10 years every single weekend, disappeared because they got a girlfriend and, you know, that was it. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, you have mm-hmm. to think about all of these athletes throughout their entire lifespan. And I see you do a lot of work with young kids and kind of getting them to do very basic, fundamental, foundational movements that just build up like movement patterns which i think is fantastic and i think you know if you actually started introducing that at the grassroots level of lots of these sports not only is the standard of the sport going to increase the athlete's going to have more longevity we're going to have more competition because we're going to be having kids that are staying in those teams for long periods of time they're going to be playing against each other at a higher level and the risk of injury just decreases massively think about how many kids get hurt at grassroots mm-hmm. levels that get that one injury and then they're like actually you know what i don't really feel like going back it's like oh we've lost so much potential yeah. the best athletes in the world right now don't they're athletes you know so that's the thing is you got to think about that perspective i mean over in the united states we're just lucky that we find athletes that are good enough to play in the nfl it's not like they're developed to play in the nfl you know, the problem is, is that your base is only, you know, your peak is only as big as your base. So if you, if you think of everything like a pyramid, you got to have a long, strawed out base in order to have a high peak. And in most Western countries, we train too specifically too fast. We create competition too quickly. And then what ends up happening is that they don't love to train. They love to win. And we all know that winning doesn't happen all the time. And as soon as you get a kid that gets injured or, or doesn't win anymore, he doesn't like it anymore because that, that was his driving force because that's what the parents and the coaches made it. I want you to win or lose. I don't want you to love what you do. You yeah. see, and that's the thing is that's where you can see the complete, you can see the complete breakdown of the train to train phase, which is where they just love to learn to work out and compete as far as competing against themselves, not against other people. And then once they build that up, I think that's what made me such a great lifter. I never went to a competition to beat other people because I knew if I PR'd myself, I'd beat everybody anyway. Dude, I was literally just talking about this. I think it was yesterday. I put a post out on social media and you you see it so much. You know, I'm sure it's probably the same with powerlifting. I'm from a strongman um, background, so... I'm in a bunch of strongman groups and you hear people that are saying, you know, oh, how many reps should I be doing on this? What what max weight should I be pulling on that? And it's like, dude, you pull your max weight. If you pull a PR on the day, that's the best you can do. Who gives a shit if Kevin then comes on and, and pulls five pounds more than you? Does it change anything? No. If you had those five pounds, you should have given those five pounds regardless. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about training is you have to learn how to love to compete against yourself first and break your own PRs. When I went to meets, I never focused on anybody else but me 
breaking my own PRs. I knew if I did that, that I was going to beat everybody else or at least have a standing chance to win. And that led me up to world records, right? Because then when I don't have, when I go to a competition, I'm not worried about what anybody else is doing, but what I'm doing, that is hellaciously freeing as far as the fact of stressors. Because all I know is, is I'm my own competition. I don't need to watch you deadlift and watch this guy bench press and watch this guy squat for my motivation. I'm motivating myself internally. And that's where that training train phase becomes huge is you learn internal motivation, not external motivation. External motivation, in my opinion, is only usable for very short periods of time. If it's not internal motivation, it will not last. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think at the end of the day, you've got to ensure that what you're doing, you're doing it for you and you're doing it for your enjoyment. Because when you enjoy something and you're passionate about it and you want to do it, dude, you're going to do so much better than if it's someone's literally having to stick, a, stick up your backside and go, right, go and train again. Get that next meal in. Make sure you're doing your recovery. Are you doing your hot colds? You know, it, it's it's just taxing and you're going to get fed up with it. You're not going to give 100%. So I think that's really, really important. Now, I'm, I'm interested to kind of take it back a step. So um, you've got, let's say you've got, I don't know, five, six-year-old kid, completely blank canvas. This, this yeah. kid doesn't necessarily want to go down uh, a lifting route. He might They might play sports. They might do something else entirely creating a foundation what is your kind of step by step would you put them straight into a gymnastics would you get them doing certain things first what would you do to kind of build the best basis for non-specific sports because i think that's the thing is that we get caught up in these very very specific pigeonholes and we lose the kind of broader spectrum yeah. of a lot of these kids which will be listening won't necessarily go up to you know play on the nfl or the nhl or do this they're kind of playing lots of different things. Yeah, if you listen to a lot of the top Eastern Bloc countries' old books, what they said was, is you need to master and perfect all postural deficiencies before any type of heavy loading, including plyometrics, can be utilized. Meaning, you have to really be careful to make sure that the kid's hamstrings are developed. So a lot of Nordic curls, Russian curls, glute ham raises, those, those need to be a massive... Um, part of your training, I would say at the younger level, anywhere from two to three times a week. Um, the Russians figured out very quickly that the athletes' knees, no matter what the sport was, were much more likely to be able to last an entire career if the hamstring to quadricep ratio was perfected at a young age. So what you find is a lot of kids come in, their quads are strong and their hamstrings are weak, and they, they never fix that, that ratio. So that creates a lot of lower back problems, glute activation issues, and knee injuries. So if it were me and I was going to start it all back over again with the knowledge that I know now, I would have kids doing tons of hamstring work and tons of planking work for the TVA, uh, transverse abdominus, which is going to make your abs insanely strong. So if you, if you look at sports in general, the abdominal muscles are not meant to flex. They're meant to hold tight. They're meant to be an isometric locker brace, between the rib cage and the hip. Yeah, it's a bracing point. So what you have to learn is how to brace. So I would say that at least 50% of a kid's training needs to be learning how to brace and getting their hamstrings super strong and then fixing any spinal deficiencies in the, anywhere from rhomboid deficiency, lower trap, spinal erectors, uh, those types of things. And then also as a child trying to figure out ways to develop these muscles without the advent of more 
compression on the spine, meaning, you know, a 45 degree back extension for a kid is going to be a lot better than a deadlift for young kids because you're doing the same muscles, but you're not creating vertical spinal compression. Same thing holds true with belt squats. Same thing holds through, true with light reverse hypers. Same thing holds true if you want to get a kid conditioned. Don't make them run on a treadmill. Make them walk on the treadmill with it turned off, right? Like dragging sleds, things of this nature that are causing the muscles to work harder, but your compressive forces are very low. And that's where it becomes very important because that really training kids and training advanced athletes almost become one and the same. It's like what you start in the beginning is what you need in the end. Because as you get older, the mileage that's been incurred on your spine and your joints are going to cause havoc if you're not training mostly traction or non-compressive based forces. So if you look at a lot of the stuff I post, a lot of belt squats, a lot of 45 degree back extensions, a lot of things that are non-compressive. I'm not saying that I don't do, do compressive movements. I'm just saying if you were to come and look at my program, it would be probably settled at about 60 to 70% of my loading is non-spinal compressive to allow me to still squat close to world records or world records in themselves. So the mindset of the beginner and the mindset of the advanced are very similar. You don't want to create mileage in the beginning and you don't want to create mileage in the end. You know, the mileage comes from the specific training in the middle. So coming into that, do you think that it's it's a case of that we should be looking to bring kind of, because I remember like when I first started uh, like really weightlifting when I was about 13, 14 years of age, you know, we, we, we were not doing belt squats. We weren't doing any of that sort of stuff. We were doing our squats. We were doing hang cleans. We were doing pull-ups. We are doing jerks. Lots of power movements. Do you think it's a case of that if we started introducing more non-compressive uh, exercises coming into kind of that that foundation of between kind of 13 to 15 years of age we're actually going to find that we're going to be getting much bigger and better sports people out of the the, the end of it because we've again come back to building a better foundation yeah the foundation that you're talking about you know one side of that is traction versus compression picking exercises that don't create mileage but the other side of that is also picking the muscles that are known to be the highest level weaknesses. Whereas if you're thinking about how you trained as a kid, you weren't fixing any weaknesses. You were just training general exercises. So in my opinion, what you start to find is that the person that's always looking for the weakest links are the ones that are doing the right thing. Because the weak links are always going to be the limiting factor. It's just dependent upon if are they a staple in your training. And would you, so, I mean, this is an interesting point. So in terms of trying to find those things, would you find them by getting them to do a conventional exercise? Or is that a weak link that you would look at from, uh, I don't know, more of a sports-specific background, whether it's like a playthrough or a run back or something like that? My, my background is in lifting. So I can select weaknesses from the back squat, from the deadlift, and from the bench press. I can see where those weaknesses are going to arise based on where someone wants to put their feet, how deep they want to squat, what their chest does when they lift, you know, all these things that you and I know now. But the thing of it is, if you look at it in general, when most people are training kids, they're not, they're not focused on those areas. They're not thinking about that. They're just making them go through the motions and they're creating worse motor patterns. And that's where the real trick is. Is like when you're a kid, you need to learn to move perfect, not lift heavy. 
right? And that's the whole point is like, let's pick exercises that when they go through that range of motion, they're not only learning better motor patterns, they're doing it in a non-mileage state. Now, once they put, put in the vertebral loading of the squatting, the delting, and the massive plyometrics, their body doesn't know how to bend in correctly, and it has no previous miles from poor exercise selection as a kid. Yeah, so let's say kind of moving uh, kind of into that kind of middle phase of training that we're, that we were talking about where kind of the, the real mileage is, is being kind of hammered into the body. Do you think that that is just kind of a non-negotiable? Do you think that it, that it's again, a case of the people have had poor exercise choice when they were younger, so they don't have the solid foundation. Or do you think that people are not realizing what their current weaknesses are and then doing something about it, they're just trying to work through it, you know, going, okay, right, I'm getting shoulder pain on bench press, so I'm going to hit on a Swiss bar, hit a neutral grip, I'm still doing a press, but I don't have the shoulder pain. Or is it a case that you need to think yeah. a little different? Yeah, I think the middle the middle part is, I mean, and like I said, we're talking theoretical, because in reality, Everyone's everybody's different. different. Everybody's going to have different backgrounds. Everybody's going to have different coaching parameters. So the problem is that the problem is not easy to figure out. If, if I were to guess, though, the intermediate is where you're going to attain most of the mileage, but the mileage can be uh, mitigated if the beginning phase is done with proper motor patterns. So, yes, I think at the middle phase, you're going to have to do more squatting, more deadlifting, more bench pressing if, let's say, powerlifting is your sport or more playing football or soccer. But at the end of the day, it's those traditional base route you know, bottom of the base level motor patterns that are going to keep you either healthy or injured. And that's where you, when you were talking about guys falling out in the intermediate phase that have been doing things for quite a few years already and all of a sudden they just disappear, it's because the base hasn't been set correctly. And what ends up, ends up happening is they get to all these injuries and overuse injuries because they weren't moving correctly to begin with. You know, they were moving based on the fact that that's how their body was taught in the first phase of training which being too specific and not focusing on weaknesses and generalities creates a very unstable, it's like putting three legs on your chair. It might stand by itself, but it only takes a little bit to knock it off its edge, right? So you got to build all four of the chair, you know, bases before you can start kicking the chair around and not fall over, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, with your your uh kind of these exercises that are causing more mileage do you think that that's where we've kind of seen this this huge obviously introduction obviously with louis and yourself and and guys that are using accommodated resistance more and more and have made it something very very big now it's actually it's very popular compared to kind of looking back 15 20 years ago you weren't seeing anywhere near as many people talking about it it's very very big do you think that this is kind of a tool that's been adapted to help that? Obviously, we know with accommodated resistance, we're going to be getting more resistance in the safer range of motion to be able to recruit more muscle fibers and not pass ourselves in those kind of sure. predicaments. Do you think this is why that kind of thing has been developed and is it utilized best that way? I think it's a tool. I mean, I think it definitely has helped. The problem is there's still so few people that I actually know how to use it in the proper percentages incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, Louie even sometimes can get a little off his rocker based on the fact that he's 75 years old. So sometimes I'll hear him say something about bands or chains and I'm looking at it going, that is not fucking right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, then, 
You know, it's, you got to know when and where to use it. But I think really the change is not necessarily the accommodative resistance and bands and chains as much as it is the, I think, Louis, if Louis were to go down for something to help all athletes was the introduction of using multiple different types of bars yeah. in order to get stronger. Because that's how I've been able to squat heavy for, this would be 29 years, um, almost, yeah, almost, almost 30 years now is the fact that I would use a safety bar, a straight bar, a camber bar. I'm changing the pressures on the body. So what I'm doing is specifically getting better at squatting with generally picking different bars. So that way I can still squat every week. Because if I try to use the same stimulus over and over again, you got to look at it like reading a book, right? You read a text, and the first time you read it, you're probably going to learn the most from it. And then the second time you read it, you're only going to learn another 10%, and the next time maybe five, and the next time maybe two and a half. The point is, is that if you want to be smart, you can't have one book. And if you want to be strong, you can't have one bar. I like that. That's very sick. Yeah, it makes complete and, sense. Yeah, and especially if you want the strength to be transferable to other things that don't require, that aren't lifting. So here's the deal. If I had a rugby athlete, right? You say you play rugby? Yeah. If I were a rugby athlete, I would be scared of the rugby player that could camber bar squat, straight bar squat, front squat, box squat, wide stance, narrow stance, bands, chains, and all different types of positions. That dude has got power that will transfer to the field. A guy that says, well, I don't ever use those bars any, and I can back squat 600. I'm not scared of that guy because he's only strong in one particular plane, and if I change the mode of the exercise, he sucks. So the athlete that has multiple stimuli and can create force and multiple angles and pressures, that's the one you want on the field, right? Yeah, and it was interesting. When you were saying that, I was thinking back to kind of like my, my, my days uh, in the gym working with the, the professional academy guys. You know, there, there are guys there that can squat 300 kilos for reps, like just absolute freaks. But I think back to, okay, well, what if we were to cycle through the various different exercises with various different bars from various different heights with accommodative resistance from a strength coach perspective i'm now going okay so the load's different on the body we're not going to get the same general fatigue from week to week we're not going to be putting ourselves back on the field in a position where we're we've knackered this out or we've knackered that out we've got a little bit more stimulation we're not going like you know totally ham and frying the cns and we're still going to be getting the most out of our general sport-specific training whilst yep. actually not fatiguing ourselves in one range with our gym-based yep. stuff, which yep. for me, and as an athlete, that just seems to be, that's the goal, right? Yeah, exactly. And you want to take it one step further, right? You want to know, let's say in a 20-week cycle, of, let's say you're doing 20 different squats, you select one out of every three of those weeks, you select the one that you're terrible at. So now you're selecting weaknesses. So not only do you need variability, you need your own weaknesses to be variable as far as what you select to train those weaknesses. This is the difference between training super smart and, in my opinion, training like CrossFit. So CrossFit does different things all the time, right? Yep. But there's no rhyme or reason to why the fuck they do it. So that makes it inherently shitty. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. If we're, Dude, if we're trying yeah, to fix structural 100%. weaknesses, if I'm trying to fix structural weaknesses, and we know that those can be, in some points and most points, very individual, 
how in the hell do I write a basic workout that everybody does, and how does that fix everybody's weaknesses? It doesn't because it's not got enough volume, intensity, or thought pattern into each person's individual weak points. So by just throwing in variability, to throw in variability is not actually a very good idea. It's throwing in variability in an educated fashion based on the fact of where your weaknesses are and then rotating those movements that you are not proficient in. Yeah, well, I mean, CrossFitters don't need to worry about the weaknesses because they can just put kinesiology tape on it and then they'll sort it out for those 45 minutes, right? And then it's fine, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, give you, to give you an example, I've never used fucking kinesiology tape. I was so, going to say, it, you, you, you know have I mean? the question, you know, how many how many world record powerlifters have you ever seen step up to, to, to lift just covered head-to-toe in kinesiology tape? You're like, no, none of them. That that's it. Like it's, it's that's the hard part is, is like I think that's where the one rep maxers, as in powerlifters and Olympic lifters, learn the value of technique. Because with maximal weights, technique is not optional. When you're doing a lightweight for lots of reps, technique's optional. With, therefore, injury's high. So people all look at, oh man, lifting super heavy is dangerous. No, lifting light weights with tons of reps with bad form is dangerous. Because right. you can't lift the maximal weight if your form is not correct, right? Well, but you can lift the you can lift the lightweight with shitty form easily. A lot of times, a lot of times, because man, you yeah. see it in every single commercial gym, and you're like, "Oh, that's a nice squat to hyperextension." I'm not really quite sure what's going on here, but someone <laughs> seriously needs to sort your fucking form out, dude. It's uh, yeah, it's quite yeah, scary. Yeah, exactly. But that's the problem is the goal is in the wrong area. You know, you need to be fixing weaknesses, and we need to be working, especially with youth and intermediate level, technical proficiency is key because once you reach master level, whatever that may be, 10, 12 years, you reach the masterist level, which is the Russians consider 10 years to 10,000 hours, right? If you're working on technical proficiency at that point, you're fucked because you have too much of a motor pattern base in the wrong way. So now you're going to go backwards to go forwards, right? Instead of just constantly going forward. Well, I, I remember when I was play, playing a, a schoolboy rugby and a, a coach said something to me that just, like, just switched the light bulb off. And he, he said, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. If you practice like shit, you're going to perform like shit. If you, if you practice with a yeah. bad squat technique, guess what? you're going to perform with a bad squat technique. It doesn't matter how many times you practice it, it's not just going to self-correct. Until you establish no. what that imbalance is, what the weakness is, and then go through and work on that, there is, there, there, there's no point in carry on trying to flog the dead horse. I mean, I mean you probably see it a lot well, with, with, with your clients that just hit these glass ceilings with squats and deadlifts and bench and stuff. And they're like, man, I just cannot get over this weight. And you're like, yeah, it's because you're leaking energy at this point, this point, this point. Work on these weaknesses, and then they come back, and it's like, hey, I just added fifty pounds to that lift, and you're like, my job here's done. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's the thing is, motor patterns become a huge issue, and you have to you have to create and construct the proper motor pattern, and that becomes one of the biggest battles in any type of sporting technique, especially when something like rugby or football, where the angles change constantly, no play is the same. Right, people attack you from a slightly different angle, slightly different position, and that's why I can't understand why in a lot of these sports, other than the fact of lack of education and true experience and training, why the conjugate system hasn't been used more often for these types of sports. Or it's just based on the fact that your general strength goes up. 
So for instance, if you're squatting with a straight bar on your back and you're doing the exact same style of squat, you have to ask yourself, are you building new strength or are you testing old strength or are you just getting better at the, the movement and you're not getting stronger at all? Right? And that's the problem with specific training that uses the same modes over and over again is that the, you start to realize that it's not transferable to anything because as soon as I put a chain on there or change it to a band squat or make you pause five seconds on a box, you go back to beginner suck level, right? So, you know, I'm pretty confident that any squat somebody puts me in, it's, I'm still going to hit a humongous number because that's how I train. Yeah. It's... I train to confuse. I train. No, sorry, carry on, carry on. Well, that was it. I just trained to confuse myself. I trained to make my motor patterns perfect in an imperfect world. And to me, that sounds like sports. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly it. When, when I think about conjugate and I think about establishing general body strength in every single plane, when you take that onto, especially a contact sport, you know, like rugby, like NFL, where you could be hit from any angle by any number of people and you might have to perform, you know, thousands of different movement patterns in the space of a game why are you just reaffirming one movement pattern it does not make any sense whatsoever yeah. now the the no. big question is when do you establish a conjugate style system within a training span of a lifetime so again we can we could we could talk about the hypothetical kind of blank canvas child compared to you know someone starting maybe in their 30s or what have you but but what where do you go with that obviously with something like conjugate you're hitting the different yeah. bars Every single bar is going to need its own time for you to establish the movement pattern that you need for it, for your muscles to develop, and then for you to be able to execute the percentiles of the 1RMs that you're working with. How much time do you spend after those foundational years working on basic squat, bench, deadlift? So let's talk hypothetically for a powerlifter or whatever. And then when do you start bringing okay. the, the conjugate into it to have the variability? Sure. So if I'm talking powerlifting, then I don't think that I could have done it better. I started off with more of a linear progression type, very limited in rotation type movements for the first three to five years that I trained. That created a solid foundational base. Now, once I learned conjugate, my numbers jumped to the moon, but my core lifts had already been structured in perfect motor patterns, meaning that the further away I got from squatting with a straight bar, the better I felt, which most people are reversed. Right? So why haven't trained with that bar in like weeks? I don't know how it feels anymore. That's telling you they're still in an intermediate or beginner phase, at least emotionally. Right? So what I found was is that I think you need to have some form of linear progression base because that stimulus of squatting, bench pressing, and delegating, if we're talking power thing, is still going to be a fairly new stimulus. It's going to have a lot of um, growth potential in order to get better. Once the growth potential starts to hit a certain level, which is going to be different for everybody, then you start to introduce these new conjugate style thought patterns to confuse, elicit a law of accommodation to the training. But that's powerlifting. If we talk sport, I would start conjugate immediately Ooh. because of the major fact that I'm not trying to be a better bar squatter. I'm trying to be a better athlete. So in the beginning, what I would do is have massive variation right off the rip because I want general strength. I don't want specific strength because I don't care what the numbers are in the gym. I care what the numbers are on the field. So the point is, is that I'm constantly having to rotate if it's athletes 
And if it's powerlifting, it's a little bit more of a specific idea, see, because they're going to lift with a certain kind of bar and a certain kind of weight and a certain kind of position, and we know what the sport is going to ask of us. In football and rugby, it could be we're going left a bunch, we're going right a bunch, we're going backwards a bunch, we're going forwards a bunch. We don't know. It could be grunt work where we're really tying into people and we're having to push and use a lot of maximal strength, and it could be more of a speed day that day. We just don't know. So the point is you have to have more – the more you need your strength to transfer to a field operation is the more variability you need in the beginning. And the more you need a specific variation, like a powerlifter, which is just max squat, max bench, max deadlift, you start off specific, you lead into more generalities, and then you end off with lots of generalities so that the body has new stimuluses to grow. So it, basically you can use it, it and, it's, and you know, the, the conjugate is like a really heavy sword. You know, if you want to go into battle with a 75-pound sword and you hit somebody with it, probably going to take their head off, right? But you've got to be strong enough to hold the fucking sword in reverse. <laughs> you can't just hit a 14-year-old with a 75-pound sword in medieval times and go, here, go fuck people up, right? It ain't going to happen. But if you build up a base and then hand them that sword, you're talk talking some crazy damage. So my point is, is, you know, if the specific, if you have a specific goal to be a powerlifter, you need specificity, then generality. And if you're an athlete, you need generality throughout your entire career with some small portions of specificity to make strength gains, but not nearly as much because, like I said, your strength needs to be transferable to many areas and many directions and angles and pressure points. So if I'm taking a person that has a general fitness, they just want to be strong, they don't care about powerlifting per se, they don't even care about competing, I'm putting them in conjugate immediately. But if their goal is to specifically be good in one thing, then I, I make sure there's more specificity involved. So I'm going to flip it straight on its head now. Now, obviously, you do a lot of tactical stuff. You, you work with the military very, very closely. Now, obviously, those guys need to still have the athleticism. They still need to have the stamina. They still need to have general strength. Um, what are you doing differently from the athletics to the tactical, from like the powerlifting to the tactical? Where where are the changes coming in that is make it that is more specific for that? Because I, I feel like there's between the athletics and that is probably not too dissimilar, right? No, I mean we can't well, it would be dissimilar if I had a very narrow thought pattern of training. But what I find is that they're very similar because my training philosophy is based on individual weaknesses or based on weaknesses of the job requirement. So what I find is that although someone's a tactical athlete or someone's a powerlifter, if their hamstrings are their weakness, it's still, that still is the quickest and safest way to make progress. So the point is, if you're always looking for structural, mechanical weaknesses, you can utilize this skeleton of thought process for any type of endeavor, whether it be tactical powerlifting, strongman, rugby, it doesn't matter because what you're looking for is structural weak points and your entire philosophy is based on correcting those weak points and those poor motor patterns and those poor ratios of like quadricep to hamstring and anterior to posterior, right? So if your thought pattern is like that, how does that not apply to every type of division of people? It does, right? But if you are a powerlifter only or you're a sprint guy only or you're this you have gaping holes in your thought process because you're not going to fix anything with that type of mentality but if you're thinking about structural imbalance constantly then you're going to select a better way do i know the best way nobody does but in my opinion i haven't really ever talked to anyone that says the things that i say and go i'm not worried about your sport i'm worried about your weakness 
Yeah, it's it's a beautiful idea that in actual fact, you know, we should all realistically, no matter what, be looking to do the same thing, which is just become less weak and generally more strong, which I think it yeah. it applies to everyone. Yeah, and then you take it to the next level. Now, what are your contractile weaknesses? Are you explosive but not strong? Are you strong but not explosive? Do you have both of those, but you don't have great endurance? Which one should you attack? The one you suck at. And then because work your probably, way probably if you look at everything like a, yeah, if you look at everything like a pie chart, then you want everything to be equal, right? You want 33% of maximal strength to be an ability. You want 33% of speed strength to be an ability, and you want 33% of your training to be endurance based. If those are all equal, you have no weaknesses in any of those. Your ability and potential, whatever you're trying to do, is going to be about as max as you can make it. What you find is that people don't have the potential in whatever they're doing because they're avoiding what they suck at, whether it be a contraction type, right? So, well, I'm really fast. I don't need to do max squats. Or I'm super strong, so I don't need to do speed. Or I'm really big, so I don't need to do endurance, right? Those things are gaping holes in your style of training and thought process, which is going to eventually limit what you can do. The ideal person is going to have an equal balance of strength, speed, and endurance. They're going to be able to be equalized. Now, depending on which one is your weakness depends on which one gets the most thought pattern in your training. So you would then prioritize that as your number one work, kind of your core lifts around that, and then would you then accessorize with more general or specific exercises depending upon what that workout is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll give you a case in point personally. 2012, I go to my first raw bench press meet because you got to remember before then everything was equipment, right? Which was fine. I go to my first raw bench press meet and hit 600, which is like 270 kilos, right? Put me at number 13 of all time in the bench press. So, and this is of any weight class. So I decide, I look at the raw world records, and remember, these raw world records were very old because everything was equipped for so many years. And Dan Kovacs had a world record at 22.02, so right at 1,000 kilos, right? And what I found was is that I, I knew I had the 600-pound bench because I just did it. Now I needed to have the squat and the deadlift up there high enough to where I could, knew I could take this total. So my first raw meet I go to, I hit 21.05, so I did a set, like a 775 squat, a 573 bench, and then pulled 755, okay? All great numbers. But here's the thing. That was the third highest total ever done in history, my first raw meet. But what I found was, is as you noticed, I said I hit 600 on the bench in 2012 and only 573 in 2013. I started to assess my training and realized, just guessing, that it was my endurance that was not allowing me to be the bench more. Because after the squat, I was too tired. Right, because you squat and then two hours later you got a bench. So I didn't realize that the 800, almost 800 pound squat was going to knock me down really hard, knock my endurance down, and make me tired. Therefore, it took 30, 40 pounds off my bench press. Fast forward a year and a half later to working on strength endurance, not maximal strength, strength endurance. My squat went to 865, which was the all time world record, and then I benched 611 in the same meet two hours later. Keeping in mind that my focus was not maximal strength and not dynamics. I was already good at those. I focused on winning warm-ups, four sets of 25 to pre-fatigue my body before I did all those lifts so I was in better shape. 
And then when I showed up at the meet, all my strength shined. If I would, if I would have thought, oh, I'm just not strong enough that day, I would have went down the wrong rabbit hole and fucked up my whole training cycle. But since I thought I wasn't in shape enough and took a shot in the dark, that it was another variable that was causing my strength to not be what it wanted to be. I was dead nails on it, and in nine months, ten months, I came back and, and smoked those numbers because I focused on my weakness. And are you using, so let's say that you've kind of established your your weaknesses, you know what you need to work on, are you then putting in exercises that stimulate the weakness in the winning warm-up, or is that going to pre-fatigue it too much so then you can't utilize it in the movement? Because I understand there's a, there is a balancing factor of too much fatigue. I mean, I know with winning warm-ups, you're meant to keep everything quite light. It's very much about kind of just getting the, the volume in there, getting the blood pumping around the body, firing up the CNS, just getting that yeah. general body readiness for your for, for yeah. your exercise so how are you doing so that? what you do is you look at yeah so let's this is use it in the bench press for example so what i'm going to do is do one exercise that's a motor pattern recruitment warm-up so that would be if i'm going to bench press i'm going to use dumbbells and bench press correct so that's just the same as a bench press but then the other two exercises because it's a three exercise warm-up the other two which is 66 percent of the warm-up is going to constitute what i feel are my weakest points so in that time I knew my lats and my triceps were the two limiting factors. So what I did was I did four sets of 25 lat pulldowns, four sets of 25 dumbbell presses, and four sets of 25 tricep pushdowns. I got all of that done, and I created myself a time limit. So what I said was I need to be able to re I need to be able to do all of this in between 12 to 13 and a half minutes. That forced me to have almost zero rest and forced me to keep the weights low. Right. Once I did that, what I started to realize is that my work capacity was the weak link. So once I plugged in and made that a work capacity, basically getting shit done faster and having more density into the warm-up versus going, yeah, I can go heavier if I rest longer. That's not what I needed. I needed to be able to go faster in a shorter rest period of time so that my capacity rose. Once I figured that out, then I started increasing the density up in the volume after, say, or uh, the intensity, say, after about two to three months shock period to where I was doing 100-pound dumbbells for four sets of 25, 150-pound lat pulldowns for four sets of 25, and like 120, 130 tricep pushdowns for four sets of 25. And then I would rest for three to four minutes, and then I would start my max effort work, and I was actually stronger than if I came in fresh. Jeez. That translated to massive bench press in a competition because guess what? When I got to the comp, there was no way I could be fatigued because I was used to no rest. So when I would squat a world record, when I got to the bench, I usually had to sit around for, for about two hours. That was enough time for me to get two meals in, completely hydrated, completely warmed back up to do another lift, and I had all the, all the gas in the tank. But the problem is, is most power guys don't have work capacity. So what, what I started to find was is that work capacity almost for everyone, including tactical, rugby, police, powerlifting. What I started to realize was the limiting factor to how hard they could train and not pay for it was their ability to have work capacity, meaning being able to do a dense amount of volume in a short period of time. Because let's face it, as we get bigger and stronger, we want to get bigger sets with longer rest periods. It's actually the absolute opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah, and I think it's, it's brilliant because, you know, when you think about, like, the general body readiness, everything that you're going to get from it, 
you're going into those those kind of first sets with your body in such a better position than it would be usually i mean i've done various different activations and stuff but there's there's something that i always feel when i do winning warm-ups especially for for bench days bench is by far my, my worst lift and when i really start to feel that those like my muscular weaknesses i like kind of i get everything pumped up everything feels good everything feels structurally more supported straight away i can go into it knowing psychologically that my body's in a better position then straight away that has a carryover because you're not worried you're not feeling that stiffness you're not thinking oh god i can't quite feel that firing yet because hey you just done a hundred freaking reps on it to get it yep. going which you, you know you yep. wouldn't do most gym bros hop underneath the bar make probably don't even do a set without weights on the bar they'll probably chuck a 20 of 45 on a side do yep. a set of 10 to 12 well, another 40 another 40 yep. and then it's like okay well yep. yeah you've you, yep. your warm-up well, has taken you less than 10 minutes sure well you have to ask yourself i think all of us have to ask ourselves and i ask myself this every day i walk into the gym to train am i going to test what i can do or am i going to build new my point is, is that if you're not pre-fatiguing yourself, you're not challenging yourself in new ways, are you really getting any better or are you testing what you already have? And to me, I'm in the gym to get better. So I'm not going to put myself in a position to make myself the best max effort day I can make unless it's for lots of money or a world record. My point to be in the gym is to be better. So I will put myself in a deficiency. I will put myself at a disadvantage in order to make the progress down the road versus trying to be the strongest guy in the gym that hour, you know, and be a show off in front of my friends. Right. It, it, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because it's that whole kind of uh, short term versus long term gratification by kind of eating shit, doing the stuff that you don't want to do, working on those weaknesses. At the end of the day, that's what then gives you the capability to then step on a stage pull a world record and do that to every single one of those people that thought that they were stronger than you for that one well, hour in the gym. You're like, bro, leave your ego yeah. at home, do the shit you need to do. And then you can rub everyone's faces in it. Once you, you're standing there with your time world record, but until then just suck eggs and crack on. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to, I think you have to open up your mind to knowing that your what you're doing and trying to accomplish is going to affect a lot more people than are just specifically around you. I mean, for example, you're messaging me from a completely different country because of the shit that I do versus me worrying about who's over at Lifetime Fitness right now <laughs> doing a 315 bench. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, man. The so internet the makes the world a small place. Up, yeah, you, yeah, and that's the good thing about the internet now is it makes the world a lot smaller and it makes people stage potentially a lot bigger if, if they use it in the right way, right? But then again, you got that comparison point where when people are first starting to lift, they look at a guy like Larry Wheels or a guy like Ed Cohen, and they're like, I want to be that guy. Why don't you worry about being the best fucking guy in the gym first, then be the best guy in the country, and then be the best guy in the world, instead of starting off being wanting to be the best guy in the world? Because that just sounds like an idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah, like ste stepping up to your first ever deadlift in a pair of sliders rather than shoes or like deadlift socks or whatever, just because he's seen like Larry Wheels do it, and you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, you can get away with it, but you don't have the foundation yet, buddy. Like, you, you don't realize that he's been doing yeah. this for fucking years and years and years and years and years behind the scenes, and you're only seeing it now, what he's actually done. Everyone just thinks, yeah. oh no, 
well, if they do that, then I can hop into doing that. And you're like, okay, I'm going to wait here five minutes and you crack on and then we can we can talk about it. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And that's the hardest part is I think the reason you can't base most people's programming off the top guys in the world is the fact that most guys' top programming is based on their weaknesses, not yours. So it's not going to be completely functional for you based on the fact that they have got their bodies tuned and we do not know what your body is, right? Like we know that Larry Wheels is a Lamborghini, but you may be just a basic Corvette and you need a lot of work before you can be a Lamborghini. So you can't use a Lamborghini style driving, right? (laughs) So that's kind of the the mentality I like to use with that, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where now we – we have access to more information. We have access to kind of more people discussing various different topics, which then in turn kind of stimulates different thought patterns, maybe cueings that you haven't heard before or kind of sequences that you found to benefit you. But that's all the positive stuff. I do still feel like, although there is so much stuff on that, I mean, you could literally not go to university, not have any qualifications in it, and kind of get the best part of a master's degree out of the information that you could actually take away from the internet if you spend the time to, to actually look and find it. But then you also have the yep. case that yep. you have all of that instant gratification where people don't want to do all that sort of stuff. They just want to go out there and they want to be pulling this first and they want, you know, they want to be pulling three plates on their first deadlift. And it's like, okay maybe actually what you need to do is spend the best part of six months picking up a 10 kilo kettlebell and actually doing it fucking properly before you even start thinking about that. And I think it's, it's, it's the case that it's so frustrating because there's so much potential out there for people to utilize, but yet we still seem to be running into the same issues no matter what. And I'm, well, uh, it's, yeah. it's trying to find a way It comes back that. down. Yeah. It comes back down to we just don't have patience. I mean, that's the problem is that we are looking for short-term fixes versus long-term fixes, and that is where all the problems start, right? You know, you're trying to figure out a way to quickly fix something that may take two to four years. And you know one of the biggest things? I actually talked about this not too long ago. One of the biggest advantages that I ever received, and to some people it's going to sound like a disadvantage, was the fact that Ed Cohen came up to me when I was 17 years old, 18 years old. I had squatted my first 600 pounds, okay? Ed Cohen comes up to me and goes, if you can hold on for another 10 years, you're going to squat 900. So he just told me that I was only going to go up 300 more pounds in 10 years. So for most people, that's like, oh, that's as good as I'm going to get. Screw that. I'm done. I thought, well, shit, I'm going to be here anyway, and I like to train so I'll just keep pushing until I reach 900 pounds. And I ended up reaching 1,200 pounds. You get my point? Yeah, man. It's just uh, it's just, just it, sticking through it all. At, at 16 to 17, I learned that everything that I wanted was going to take a long time. And I was okay with that. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that kind of really, I think, defines whether people then go on to work with their passion or they kind of realize that, actually maybe this isn't what I want to be doing because when you're kind of faced with that and I think that's again with injuries it's that whole thing of going okay I'm already doing this thing now I consciously have to take a step back and do this for six to six months to two years before that actually gets better 
And it's like, well, when you have an injury, there's no other choice. Because if you want to get back on the field, you're going to do anything it takes to get there. I've had bad knee injuries and like avoided surgery like it was the Black Plague and rehabbed every single day for six months. And then I can get back out on the field. But there are equally guys that will take that knock and they'll go, actually, yeah, you know what, I, I don't know. And it's like, okay, well, you have to understand that to get there, you're going to have to put in that work. And if you do want to get to that upper echelon where, like, you know, the, you, like yourself, then you yeah. have to understand that the time periods just get longer and longer and longer and longer. And I don't think there are a lot of people that want to commit to that. And especially at that young age, they're, no. they're not on Instagram going, hey, man, I'm still going to be pulling, like, at, like stupid weights when I'm 35, 40. They're like, nah. I just want to look cool in front of chicks and get tons of likes. It's like, okay, well, maybe this isn't the place for you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard, man, because I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of those people in the next 20, 30 years are going to see a ton of regret because they didn't want to put the time and effort into it. Because you only get one roll with this fucking dice. And to me, I was okay with taking a quarter of a step forward every day. Now, I didn't, I didn't have to take 20 steps forward in one day. As long as I was taking a quarter of a step, and then you do that for 20 years, you're going to find that you're five miles ahead of everybody else, right? So it's one of those things where I think we, you know, Charles Paulson used to tell me this all the time. We tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year, and we underestimate what we can accomplish in five. I hadn't heard that before, right. but that is beautiful. That makes perfect sense. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and those are that's a huge factor. I mean, being able to understand that everything has a long anything that's worth anything has a long term process to it. I mean, that's just the end of the that's the end of the road with that. You know what I mean? If if you want to be the best, you better be willing to put in the work for years and years and years. It's not a at that point, it's not a hobby; it's a passion. And if you don't have the passion, you know, kind of rounding everything back to full circle is you learn the passion in the first stage of training. If competition is your passion, you're not going to last. If you being better than you were yesterday is your competition, then you're going to last. And that's a huge issue that I think most people fix. Take three to five years and just develop a love for just getting better and just loving to train and loving to be in that environment and then let it go where it may be. Maybe you'll never be a Larry Wheels. Maybe you'll never be a Matt Winning. But you'll be the best version of you that you can be, and that's all that matters. I know. I go to these lifting meets now, and I'm not impressed with how much weight's on the bar. I'm watching people's technique. If somebody squats 800 and it looks like shit, I don't care. If somebody squats 450 and it's perfect, I get I get chills watching that. I, I like to watch perfection. I don't care about intensity, right? But it's because you know. You know what that perfection can lead to because the perfection opens the door far wider than the 800-pound shit squatter ever will. Because it's it's endless potential when you when you can see that and you yeah. can see it's a grind. You're like, okay, yeah, but that's gonna be where we're rounding this one off. Uh, <laughs> uh, with that guy, you're yeah. like, oh <laughs> my much. god, this is it. Like we've found the prodigal <laughs> son. <laughs> uh -huh. Exactly. So I want to uh, I want to round this off the same way I do every single podcast. I want you to take uh, take a second. Imagine that you're taking a step back in time. You're visiting your younger self, very impressionable age, kind of 10, 12, 13 years of age. You're getting into training and stuff, but just gem not just generally with training, but in life in general, you get to give yourself, you know, uh, just a, a bit of wisdom, whether that's a quote, a mantra, a sentence, a, a methodology to live by. What wisdom do you impart on your younger self to help you get from where you were then 
to where you are now knowing everything that you do? Two or three words. Consistency beats intensity. Right? Showing up every day is more important than being only good once a week. Right? Putting the work in for 6, 10, 12 years is more important than putting in the work for one year. So being consistent is going to be your best friend. That's going to be the biggest thing I'm going to say. And then the other thing I would say was is that you can't, you can't out-train a shitty diet, right? The fuel that you're putting in and the nutrition that you're getting and the recovery you're getting is going to a lot more growth than the best training program in the world, right? So you can train as smart as you want, but if all those other pieces of the puzzle aren't put together properly, you can kiss all that shit goodbye because it's only going to get you so far. Perfect. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I'd love to have you on again at some point. And, um, and yeah, all the best with everything. Yeah. All the best with the new house. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope everything's good with you, man. Yeah, man, I appreciate it, dude. Thank you very much.